You're tuned into the Tokyo Living Podcast, where we help you live a healthy and enjoyable life in one of the most amazing cities in the world. On this special 99th episode of the show, Sam has friend Ira Bolden interview him about his background, career, and life in Japan. Tokyo Living is proudly brought to you by Club 360, changing lives through health and fitness. Hello, my name is Ira Bolden. I'm your guest host today on the Tokyo Living Podcast. I'm interviewing, you, interviewing for you, Sam Gilmer, the creative force behind the podcast. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Ira.、Uh, thank you very much for、uh, stepping up into the role of,、uh, of guest host.、Um, you join a long line of three people, and、uh, you're the first who's not related to me、uh, to actually、uh, do the guest host honors. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you.、Um, Getting the,、uh, the dress code memo as well. And、uh, if Ralph Lauren w a n t to reach out and、uh, offer us any sponsorship deals,、uh, I'd be happy to take that on. I think they definitely should. So I'm here because I've known Sam for quite a long time. I'm going to ask some intriguing questions so that other people can get to know you as, as well as I do.、Sounds、the、good. first question I've got for you, Sam, is can you just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, what was it like growing up? Sure. So I think most people know that I'm Australian,、uh, and if you haven't figured out, By the accent,、uh, you're probably from North America and trying to figure out whether I'm Australian or English. I still don't get that.、Uh, anyway, I grew up in, a, a, <laughs> I grew up in,、uh, in Australia, near Melbourne, basically 100、uh, kilometres outside Melbourne, in a, a country town or city, depending on how you want to define it,、uh, called Ballarat.、Uh, it's probably got over 100,000 people now.、Um, I grew up, you know, my, my story is a, a rags to riches one. You know, we had a fairly a comfortable lifestyle, went to, to a private school in, in the city.、Uh, my parents were fairly successful in business.、Uh, they worked extremely hard to, to, to get that success, but that also you know, provided us a lot of opportunities. I know I always used to look at how hard、uh, my parents worked, and especially saw my dad,、um, who was. Very business, busy with his business at that time, and always thought, you know, I, I never want to be a businessman. I just, you know, I just want to work. I don't want to have to worry about a business.、Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be a physio instead, right? And then, I think you failed at that. Yeah, I failed miserably.、Um, <laughs> ended up you know, doing physio, but, but making a business out of it and probably working、uh, just as hard as my, my parents ever did.、Uh, but yeah, like I said, we had a, a comfortable lifestyle. I had,、uh, I've got a younger brother who's five years younger than me.、Uh, we've also got、uh, older half siblings、um, from my father's first marriage, who、uh, the oldest actually has kids the same age as me and my brother. So、uh, my dad, I think, now is up to 11 grandkids and 10 great grandkids. So we've got a yeah, big family, and, and、uh, for the most part, that family has stayed in, in that town.、Um, and、uh, yeah, I. My parents were very supportive of us, whether it was in academics or athletics, but they weren't、uh, super pushy either. You know, if we wanted to do something, if we wanted to push at something, they would certainly help us and give us all their support, but we weren't really pushed into anything.、Uh, played you know, a variety of sports and,、uh, and eventually you know, found my, my first true love of karate. Sam, a lot of people know about your karate experience, but one thing I've always found interesting is that you also have a big love for, for music. Yeah, I, so I started karate when I was eight,、uh, and actually started guitar when I was seven.、Um, I、uh, and, and played guitar through to the end of high school, relatively seriously. I was、uh, studying music as a subject during school, and you know, up until my mid to late teens, I guess, I was still thinking of music as a potential career option. I, yeah, there were two, two streams that became evident as I went through my formative years. And, Um, one was sort of the, the musician stream, and the other was 
going into physiotherapy and, and combining that with martial arts and sports performance, all that sort of seemed to point in the same direction. And, and as I went through my, my career, the, the karate, the martial arts, and the physio, uh, they complemented each other, whereas the lifestyle of the musician, I think, would have been, wouldn't have sort of gelled with, uh, with my martial arts career as, a, as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I studied music up until uh, the end of school, and uh, I had a band. Uh, we, we shout out to all the, the Pork Sword members out there. Uh, we're going to the origins behind that name. Uh, there might be... What kind of music did you guys play? Well, it's interesting. We started off as a death metal band and ended up uh, playing the type of music you'd probably expect to hear in some uh, low-budget adult films. Like, it was a movie. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, we, we started off uh, doing quite heavy, uh, heavy metal, and we, we had a combination of covers and originals. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was a group of friends who had somewhat similar but somewhat diverse interests in music. So we sort of tried to cater to each other's tastes, and so uh, that meant that we played a variety of things, and, um, and yeah, we had a lot of fun with that and, and recorded a couple of originals that, that might still be out there either on the internet or my wife's playlist. Uh, I don't know what it is. Everybody names. Name. Okay, so if you Google uh, caress. <laughs> um, there's parts of it where I'm singing in a, a female voice to my best of my ability. Um, so that might be out there in the internet, in the web somewhere. Uh, if, if you want me to send you a copy of it, uh, you can DM me. Um, yeah. Very cool, <laughs> very cool. I'm going to DM you about that. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that, was sort of, that, that all came, uh, the beginnings of my music interest uh, yeah, came before I actually got into coffee. So... Let's dive into karate. Right. Now, give us the explanation of how did you get started. So, in the beginning, I just wanted to learn how to fight. Uh, not because I was bullied or picked on. I didn't really have that experience growing up. And, you know, we, we, our lifestyle where we lived, it wasn't really a threat, uh, per se, of uh, being a It's not like I grew up in... in you wanted to be the threat. And, yeah, I wanted to be the threat, based on just what I've seen from movies and... And, uh, and I just wanted to have that ability to walk into a room and just be able to kick everyone's ass and, and, and have that sort of power and that, that, that ability. And that's what drove my initial desire to walk into a karate dojo. But once I got in there, I realised that there was a great sport behind at least the style that I was doing. It was called uh, Kyokushin. Our organisation is called Shin Kyokushin. Uh, but the style I started was Kyokushin Karate, and it has a reputation as being a, a very hard style of competition. It's a full contact style, we don't wear gloves. Um, we don't punch to the head, and, and there's certain aspects of it that aren't necessarily that applicable in a, uh, an actual fight, like a street fight or self-defense uh, environment. But it, uh, to me, it appealed as a, as a really fun sport and something that I wanted to pursue, and once I got into it, I, uh, yeah, I, I pushed fairly hard. I, um, yeah, you know, I started off sort of competing somewhat seriously, and I can remember there was one competition in 1993. I was it was just before I turned 13. I managed to sort of sneak into the under 13 age division. I think they went up in threes in terms of the ages, and uh, I won a state title that I wasn't really expecting to win. And from there, that that sort of flicked the switch. And I think that was probably the start. I, I can remember I was actually a little bit more into the music at that stage. I was playing a lot of guitar and uh, sort of went along to the state tournament and managed to win. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this, this, this actually feels good. You know, I like the fact, I like getting up on stage 
uh, and getting a trophy. And, um, and I actually, I remember the, uh, because I was, uh, I was trying to look like Kurt Cobain, I, had, uh, I was trying to grow my, my hair out. The problem was my hair didn't grow sort of down. It grew to about my ears and then wanted to go back up to the roots. So it sort of looped around like this. Ooh. So it looked really bad. And I've got like, naturally quite thick hair. Uh, and so whenever I went to the hairdresser, I needed to get it uh, thinned out. But it didn't really make the nice flowing rock star hair that, that I would have liked. And so I can remember going up on stage to get my trophy. And there was a, a relatively famous boxer called John Famicom who uh, was presenting the trophies. And, uh, I, and I didn't really know who this guy was, but he was sort of semi-famous and, and he was you know, on the board and whatever. <laughs> anyway, so he said, yeah, congratulations, it was a really great fight. And then the guy who was handing the trophies to John was standing next to him and, and I went to shake his hand and he shook, me head, it shook my hand and he goes, get a haircut. Whoa. And so I think that was sort of a trigger. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I should just focus on being a karate champion, leave the, the rock star part. Uh, wow. And I think that was a little bit of a change. And I actually just thought of that now, but maybe that sort of... That was the inflection. Yeah, that was the inflection. Yeah. yeah. And I, don't, I can't remember much of what this guy looked like, but I'm pretty sure he had a big mullet and a, a moustache and he was telling me to get a haircut. But, so it must have been bad, right? <laughs> That's bad. Yeah. Take care of him, kid. Very cool. So... Now you you decided to do karate, but how do you sustain it to low that you know you you competed in two thousand nine, you know, fourth place at the world's karate. What was it that kept you motivated to keep going and going and going, getting better and better? Yeah, it was just a desire to win. Uh, I just and and I've often gone back and tried to analyze where the motivations, how intrinsic or extrinsic those motivations were, whether I truly wanted that sensation of winning or I wanted like the the accolades and the acknowledgement that comes along with winning. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. I still haven't quite figured that out. But whatever it was, I liked the idea of success uh, and and that sort of drove me. And, yeah, I realised as I went through this process of competing and preparing for competitions that I had a, a fairly strong work ethic. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had... I've, carry that work ethic into other areas of my life and you know, I attribute that to uh, both the nature and nurture of the environment that I grew up in, with my parents being very hard workers. Um, and then you know, I also just sort of developed, I guess, a relationship with hard work that I put something into, I put sort of effort into a certain thing and then got a reward and enjoyed that process. And so, um, yeah, I just learned how to, to work hard. I think... We'll probably talk about later what things I do differently in my life. I think I, I'd still, to this day, need to work a little smarter and uh, not only work hard. No. But, uh, yeah, it was really that you know, I set myself the goal of being world champion when I was a kid and I uh, just continued to, to work towards that. You understand about your karate and your motivation and your drive there. When did physio come into the picture? Yeah, so I think at the same time that I became fascinated with karate, so... I guess the main influences for me getting into martial arts were, were movies. You know, I was a, a massive John Paul Van Damme fan, and uh, you know, I love watching Bruce Lee movies. And uh, the Karate Kids um, was an 
it, it be motivation, not not the actual kid himself. I actually wanted to be Johnny, but I was Johnny. And, uh, <laughs> and and even <laughs> the bad kid on the block. Exactly. And, and watching yeah, Netflix and, and YouTube uh, released the uh, um, Cobra Kai series, which I absolutely loved, and, and it was great to sort of relive that. And uh, you know, made my wife watch a couple of episodes, and she was like, "This is just." so cheesy, do we have to watch this? And I was like, you don't understand, yeah, everything we have. We wouldn't even have met if it wasn't for oh the gosh. beef between Daniel and Johnny that drove me in the car there and then uh, you know, eventually took me to Japan. But anyway, uh, one of the things though, that apart from the, the ability to fight was you know, the physique that these martial artists had, martial artists had especially uh, Van Damme. And so um, I wanted to, to be strong and, and have that physicality. I think, you know, you can see this in, in my son's Especially my oldest son, yeah, my sons are both uh, my older two, uh, uh, obsessed with uh, WWE, and I'm sure the, the, the one year old is not far off getting into it as well. Uh, but they've also gone through stages where they've been really, really into superheroes, and they've sort of identified these, what we, we what I call now as biomotor abilities, um, you know, strength, power, speed, yeah. all these different attributes that. Uh, um, a superhero or a, a wrestler or whatever it has that allows them to be dominant in physical situations and, and I really sort of took to that. So uh, I, I basically started lifting anything I could find. I had, uh, my parents still bring it up, you know, I had a homemade barbell set where I took a broomstick and attached, like we had a toy cash register but it was like made, made out of steel and it was quite solid and I like tied that to one end and then I had like a, a watermelon and a grapefruit in a plastic bag <laughs> and the other and then I would just sort of lift that up. And, uh, and then my mum had like 1.5 kilo dumbbells and I'd, I'd do some curls with those. And, and then once I was old enough, uh, my mum took me to the local university gym and uh, yeah, and, and set me up with one of the trainers there and, and they told, taught me how to actually you know, live properly and, and go through all the work. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so I think that uh, that interest in physicality and and sports science, as you know, I came to understand it as started quite young as well. The physio side, I think that I, I'm not sure when it started. I can't identify a specific moment. It's not like I had uh, some some physios will say, you know, I had this injury when I was young, and the physio helped me through it, and that sort of inspired me to get into the industry. I didn't really have that, mm -hmm. uh, but for, at some point, I developed this fascination with, um, yeah. I guess uh, at the same time as I had a fascination with trying to hurt people, I also had this fascination <laughs> with trying to fix people. I thought the idea of someone being hurt, and especially in a sports sense, uh, someone's ability to perform sport being uh, negatively impacted and being able to fix them seemed uh, really appealing. As I became a physio, I realised that we don't, we don't fix people. That's not what we do. We coach people through a rehab process or uh, a pain experience. We unpack that. We assess that individual and hopefully give them the tools to self-manage their condition. But at the time, knew that that uh, aura of being able to fix people seemed very appealing. And so uh, I think even a couple of years before the end of my high school, I uh, decided that I wanted to get into physio. And I'm, I feel lucky because a lot of people will uh, finish high school and even finish university and not really have any idea of what they yeah, want to do. So I'm, I'm pretty, Grateful that I had a, uh, a relatively clear career path, uh, even into my sort of mid twenties. Yeah, I mean, early on you had this desire to be world champion and the desire to go and give me a break. You're going to fix them. That's a pretty good business model. So. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's the three sixty model. <laughs> I 
know Karate Kid is really important to your life, but uh, something interesting is that the Miyagi's, do they really live next door to you? <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, where we live now, we bought the plot of land in 2018 and then moved in uh, 2019. And yeah, we, we realized that the people living directly opposite us, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Miyagi, uh, yeah, lovely uh, couple, probably in their 70s. Uh, they live with their, their daughter there, and um, yeah, the, the Miyagi's are my neighbors. Did, did you tell them about? No, the they have no idea. They have no idea. But yeah, we, we have a good relationship. And uh, just this morning, um, uh, my uh, 19 month old now, Archie, uh, came out the front door, and, and Mr. Miyagi was there up on the balcony hanging out. He's, uh, <laughs> He's washing, and uh, Archie looked up at me, waving, and goes, oh, hi, oh, and uh, Mr. Miyagi gave him the oh, hi, oh, back, and yeah, so. I think this is like, meant to be. Absolutely. The credit kit aura continues to, yeah. to take care of you. No, it really is probably the most uh, ironic thing about my whole uh, Japan. <laughs> so, tell me how you actually got here, though, to Tokyo, right? You, yeah. you have this love of karate, uh, you decided to have Genesis Music, and do physio, why, why Japan? Yeah, so I, I think uh, going back to the karate kid, you know, well, going back to karate as an art uh, was developed in Japan. You know, it it, made, it has its roots in, in Chinese martial arts through the Okinawa, and then there were masters that brought Okinawa to mainland Japan. But it's it's pop, popularized as a Japanese martial art. Chokushin uh, karate as a style has its headquarters in Japan, and now it's unfortunately fragmented into a number of different organisations due, due to um, you know, political problems that I think happen in walks of life. And, uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was centred in Japan. There were always Japanese instructors that came out to Australia. Some of them lived for a certain amount of time. One of my uh, biggest mentors was, uh, fortunately, passed away uh, about a decade ago, but uh, Ishii Shihan uh, was someone who had stayed at the um, uh, the Tokyo Honbu, the Tokushin Honbu, and the in, Japanese instructors were technically very good. They had this aura about them um, that, that sort of made me want to learn more about the way that karate was taught in Japan. There's also the, the Karate Kid side, you know, uh, in, in Karate Kid 2, uh, Daniel follows Mr. Miyagi over to what was, you know, Supposed to be Okinawa, I think it was actually filmed in Oahu. Uh, but they sort of, that, that gave me a, an extra spark of interest in Japanese karate. And then also, there were a few competitors, both in Australia and overseas, who had lived for a period of time in Japan, and then that had sort of bolstered their uh, competitive career. Um, one of them is uh, Nick Pettis, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with. He, um, he ended up going into K1. He's actually been on the podcast. Um, uh, and uh, he actually runs uh, the Michelle the CrossFit. Oh, okay, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, he was one who came over here. He lived for three years at uh, the the Chukchin headquarters at Hombu, and then came out just an absolute beast of a fighter. And uh, and there was another a friend of mine who was actually in the same program as him a year above, uh, Judd Reed from Australia, who I ended up training with when I was living in Melbourne. And uh, he had also uh, done that same program and the same thing. He, he graduated, just a different person in terms of his uh, competitive status. And so I thought that you know that that was something that I wanted to try and do. I finished high school and I was able to defer my university placement for a year. And I was lucky enough to get a training scholarship to come out here for what ended up being five months. 
and I was living in uh, Shikoku in Kochi, which some of the listeners might be familiar with, some of them might have been there, um, but it is a relatively rural place yeah. in, in Shikoku. And, uh, but, but the guy who was uh, brand chief, still is brand chief, brand chief, he's one of the vice presidents of our organization, he had fairly high um, yeah, ranking in the organization, and he was close with uh, Ishi Shihan, uh, who's his mentor, one of my mentors in Australia, and so they organized for me to go over there and, and live for, for five months and basically train full time. And I, you know, it was a very, very hard five months. I was 18, I probably saw or interacted with three other foreigners in the five months that I was there. I didn't speak any Japanese. And I was living with one of the senpai, sort of the head instructor in the dojo, um, uh, Takazawa sensei, who ended up going through a fairly um, successful competitive career himself. Uh, he, he got to the final of a couple of uh, All Japan championships in, in the weight category and as a middleweight. Um, but I was living in with, with living with him, and when I was when the experience was described to me, they said, "Oh, you'll be living in uh, Takazawa Son's apartment." And I said, "Okay, cool." I don't think I'd ever been in an apartment. Like we grew up in a country <laughs> town, everyone had houses. There's not there's no high rise living in Ballarat. There are a few apartments there now, um, but yeah, even what would be called as apartment or a unit in in Ballarat was still like a it was bigger than any any uh, apartment that most people would be living in in Tokyo. So I was expecting to be living in something like that. You know, I mean, three or four bedrooms and just yeah. You know, so I get to this this guy's apartment and you know it was a, a rokujo room with a tiny little kitchen and and I walked into the room. It's like. Is this your room or my room? <laughs> it, and it was both of our rooms. And, and stupidly, I'd actually, I, yeah, we talked about the music, I'd brought my guitar. <laughs> there was no room for that. So that was stored away because uh, I thought I'd play some guitar uh, in between training sessions, which I did, which was, helped me keep sane. Um, but yeah, I mean, for him, he was 28 at the time. He's got this smelly little gaijin 18-year-old living with him because his shigucho told him that that's what he had to do. And, and so... I basically I got the shit beaten out of me for five months, and uh, where, and you know, he he was very hard on me. I, not and maybe it's part of it was taking it out interrupting <laughs> his life, his space for that period of time. Um, but he was also a, a great mentor, and and that was a very physically um, toughening and, and um, you know, mentally toughening experience for me. Like, um, we were training three days, three times a day, uh, most days. It was at least two, yeah, sometimes three sessions a day, and uh, and sparring was very hard. And you know, I was I was technically okay, but I was yeah physically immature compared to the guys I was training with. And so yeah, it really toughened up. And and, and so yeah, I really thank uh, both the Shikucho, Miyoshi Shian and, and Takazawa-san for that experience. And yeah, I still catch up with uh, with him uh, at tournaments a couple of times a year. And uh, and he was great. I mean, he he was I think ahead of his time in terms of. Yeah, the sports science side, he, I did a lot of like plyometric training with him, which I'd never done before, and uh, his, his strength training, he was really strong in the gym, and he uh, taught me a lot of lifting technique. I basically went over to Japan training like a bodybuilder, and he actually sort of changed my weight training up and, and taught me to train a little bit more specific for sports performance, and then that really helped. Um, he wasn't the most technical guy, and I think that probably limited him that he didn't. He never won an All Japan Championship. He also got fourth in a World Cup, like I did in middleweights, the, the you know, four years before I did. Uh, but I think he probably he was just yeah you know, very fit, very strong, and loved to go in and bang. And maybe that sort of installed a little bit of that mentality with me that I just needed to be 
technical, strong, and uh, and fit, and, and that would see me uh, have success rather than stepping back and being a little bit more tactical. Um, but that was my first experience with Japan, and then I went back and qualified for the national team. So the year after, I started my university degree, and then also competed in my first World Cup. That was two thousand one. Went through uni, um, finished the four-year physiotherapy degree, and at that stage, in that four years, I'd actually had two major knee uh, injuries. I had two re- re- reconstructions in eighteen months, and and you know I didn't know how much longer at that point my knees would be able to hold out, and so I. Th- no, were these before the when you came fourth? Yes, way before. So that was two thousand nine. We're talking end of two thousand and four. I came out to Japan. And so uh, I thought, you know, I didn't really need to make a, a decent go of this now. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to come back to Japan and was lucky enough to get another scholarship, this time with the dojo in Fukuoka. And that was actually... Small the, apartment stuff? Uh, yes, yes, it was. Um, I was ready for it, though. And... Um, you kept the guitar back in Australia. I left the guitar in Australia. And I didn't bring that back out here until, like, 2011, I think. Uh, until, you know, Lani and I had a... a Big enough space, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I came into football, and that, that was under the current president of our organisation. Now he was based most of the time in Tokyo. He also ran his a branch in his home island of Hamamiyoshima, uh, but he 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 oversaw the football branch. I knew that I'd be living in cramped uh, quarters. Uh, we had a two-bedroom place. In which we housed between four and five two. people, two bedrooms. So there was two people in right. each room, or sometimes three. Is so this room here? Is... No, 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 no. The whole place, uh, thirty maybe. It was, it was basically two locker rooms, uh, and then a kitchen yeah, and bathroom. Yeah. So it was pretty cramped, but I was I was okay with that. It wasn't as much of a shock um, based on what I've been through before, um, and also. Yeah, there was a 10-year age difference between myself and Takazawa-san, so he was still very much my superior. When I went over to Fukuoka, the guys I was living with were my age, so we actually had a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, the, um, Takazawa-san was almost like an older brother, and, and, and whereas the guys I was living with were more like friends, so, yeah. Uh, so I was there for 10 months, and then um, during that time, even before coming out to Tokyo, I had looked at physiotherapy options in Japan, and uh, I saw that there was an expert physiotherapy practice, and so I was in contact with the owners. And uh, my goal was always to try and get to Tokyo and okay. uh, and continue my work as a physio uh, because I needed to finance my time out here, and I also wanted to keep up my physio skills. So, yeah, I, I was coming to so I was coming to Tokyo in October of two thousand five for the All Japan Championship, and um, my ideal scenario was that I'd stay on after that, stay in Tokyo, and then. Continue working in Tokyo Physio, and that came to fruition. So I was offered a job, and uh, yeah, came came up uh, to Tokyo and was working there for uh, seven years. So yeah, basically until I retired from competition and sort of went on to the next stage. Uh, for Club Three Sixty, Club Three Sixty is Tokyo's premier health, fitness, and rehabilitation center, offering physiotherapy osteopathy, personal training, group fitness classes, boxing, sports massage, pilates and nutrition consultations. With two full-time locations in Moto Azubu and Higashi Azubu, as well as satellite physiotherapy practices in Shibukoen and Yokohama, Club360 boasts a team of high-level practitioners from all over the world ready to take care of your injury and fitness needs and guide you on a path towards a healthier and happier life. 
Come visit us at cop360.jp or follow us at cop360rupongi on Facebook and Instagram. Now back to the show. Oh, before we jump into Club 360, I want to bring you back a little bit. Talk about um, fourth place finish. You know, and, and, and uh, uh, disappointment. You, know, you want to be world champion yeah. in the fourth. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, it was was interesting. It wasn't dissimilar to the my first experience uh, of winning a state title that really sparked um, that that change in mindset and that the big focus on karate. I, I wasn't really expecting to do as well. I think two years earlier in the world championships, so basically our our organisation has a world uh, championship every two years. One is an open weight tournament, and that is the most prestigious event. That's the world tournament, and then you have the World Cup, which is a weight division tournament. I thought that I was going to do really well in the 2007 open weight tournament. By 2009, I was already starting to think a little bit more about life after karate and what I might want to do, and. Uh, I still trained extremely hard for that tournament, but I wasn't as completely focused as I was in other tournaments. I think that was also, I think that was actually helpful. So I, I wasn't as nervous, um, and I, I, I was a lot more relaxed about the whole experience. And so when I went over there, I, I, I still thought that I could do fairly well, and I actually had a very favourable draw. And looking at the draw, um, the guy that was fighting the first round, he was a strong fighter, he was a number two Russian fighter, and he would, the, the, the tournament was in uh, St. Petersburg, so it was, a, uh, it was a hometown advantage for him. But uh, in our rule set, if the fight is a draw, we get two extension rounds, and if it's still a draw after that, um, and a fight being a draw, it's not like um, some combat sports, the, the, the judges have to make a decision on each round. Uh, whereas some combat sports, uh, you can make a round of draw, and uh, in, depending on like, the sport or the organisation, what the judges decide is sufficient enough to give a, a fighter a decision varies immensely. So in some tournaments, you might see someone get beaten up and then it'd still be called a draw because they just want to see a lot of extensions. They want the fighters to work. They want to really see the fighters prove themselves. Um, But anyway, I think that uh, it was a relatively even match. Um, I think I probably got on top of him a little bit at the end, uh, but it was called a draw, and I won uh, on weight. So basically, if it's still a draw after two extensions, they go to the scales, and if there's a 10-kilo split, then uh, the lighter fighter will be a victory. Now, he was like... I was 90 kilos, he was, uh, I think, like 115, so I, I won that fight on weight. And then looking ahead, and I, oh, that was my plan, I think I can survive the first uh, part of the bout, and then he, he didn't have the best stamina, he had very hard body punches, but I was actually fairly strong in the body, and I had a good distance gain that I could actually shut down some of his attacks and then tie him out, and that's what I did. And then after that, like the, the road through to the semi-finals actually looked pretty clear, because everyone I was scheduled to... to possibly match up against had in some way been inferior to this guy beaten in the first round. Like either they'd lost to someone that he'd beaten or, you know, they had lost to someone he'd gone he was sort of very close to, but they but and, and so I worked it out that, you know, it's not always the case. Matches matchups make fights and uh, it's not always A beats B therefore uh, and B beats C therefore A must beat C. But 
I had it in my mind that if I could beat this guy, if I could get the decision, then I would be on the level to be able to beat the other guys in my block and make it through to the semi-finals. And that's exactly what happened. And so everything was going as planned. Um, and in a way, even me learning losing in the semi-finals was sort of as planned because I hadn't actually been able to visualise my way past the semi-finals. And part of that was that I was competing against... Uh, uh, my childhood hero, um, not Van Damme, uh, another childhood hero, uh, in Skamoto-san, who, was, uh, who I ended up training with when I was in Tokyo. So basically the six years leading up to that tournament, I was sparring with this guy a couple of times a week, and and he was a big mentor to me, he taught me a lot, and he, you know, I've spoken about Skamoto-san on other uh, interviews before, but he was a massive, one of the biggest influences in my life, and, and one of the most wonderful people uh, you ever met and everyone who's had uh, the chance of uh, interacting with him is, is an instant fan. He's just got an aura about him. Not only technically, he was the most exciting fighter to watch, but just as a person. He's an incredible person. And so I couldn't get over the mental barrier of fighting against someone who I looked up to so much but had also given me so much. I, I, and he was in a position where I could have taken physically. He was very tired from his last match, and I was still fresh. I was actually building, and I just I was holding myself back, and I, 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 I kept telling myself, and, and our national team coach was shouting at me, like, Sam, this isn't a sparring match. And I was like, I, I know, but I kept, this, this has been a sparring match for six years. And I can't get over that. I can't actually flick the switch. Uh, and so... Did, did, did he tell you, Sam? Did he encourage you? No, no, he didn't. I think he he probably knew that at that stage, if I fired up, I, I probably could have taken the match. Um, but I never, I, I, I just couldn't mentally take those breaks off. And uh, looking back on it, do I regret it? I'm, I'm not sure. Like I feel like I should regret it, but then maybe that would have changed our relationship and. Um, I'm not sure whether I would have gone in to win the final. He, he lost in the final, and, and the guy that won the final, final Bulgarian guy, has, has won, I think, four World Cups, uh, three World Cups. Um, he's, he's, he's probably, I mean, him and Skamoto, within our organisation, within, after the organisation split, um, within our side of the organisation, those two are clearly sort of the, the goats. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd look at the history of full contact karate or knockdown style karate and put those two as the the one and two uh, greatest of all time, in my opinion. Um, so they ended up fighting in that, and, and, uh, and I'm not sure that I would have beaten this guy, Valeria. So I still don't know whether I would have become world champion. Uh, I would have given myself a better chance. Um, but looking back on it, I'm still proud of what I did in that tournament. And, um, you know, everyone still talks about the time that I went the distance and, and that went down to the very last extension. So I went to the point where we that went to the weight, the, the scales, we were within 10 Whoa. kilos of each other and so we had to fight out another extension, at which point the judges do have to make a, a decision then and, and uh, they decided in his favour. So, yeah, that was... Uh, and and that, that sort of sparked my motivation then to compete for another two years. Um, and so I can continue competing up until the next Open Weight World Tournament and then retired after that. So through that, you know, I can see this, this, this the importance that you put on the relationship to the point where it was holding you back from, yeah. from taking what you probably could have taken. Yeah. Sam, can you tell us a little bit about how you managed the transition going from competing, you know, very high level in karate to not competing anymore? Yeah, I mean, it, it was lucky in a way with the timing. 
at the end of uh, 2011, I had my last competition in October, which it wasn't like a uh, decision after the tournament, thinking, oh, I'm done. I'd decided leading up to it that that was going to be my last competition. And I was actually lucky. Tsukamoto, uh, who I mentioned before, he won that tournament in 2011, and he'd also decided that uh, he was going to retire. Um, we were on opposite sides of the draw. In a perfect world, I would have loved to fight him in the final, but um, I still probably would have lost. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I didn't make it to the final. And he ended up winning, which was fantastic for him, and we were all very happy. Uh, but yeah, I'd already decided to um, retire. I'd also decided to propose to uh, Lani, and we were, were sort of planning to get, well, we were, we were planning to get married uh, the year after. Um, I actually asked her permission and did the, the right thing. I asked her father for permission in March when we went back to Australia Very after good. the earthquake. And um, but it had been like seven months and there was still no proposal. Uh, we joked oh, eight months, I think. He, he was going to actually retract uh, his, his blessing as a joke. <laughs> yeah. Don't hurry up. But I wanted to get the tournament out of the way, so um, ended up getting engaged in November. Retired from competition. I also started my masters uh, early the year after. And we started looking for locations for 360. So, you, you don't believe in taking it easy. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it was just so many changes to my life that um, I, I wasn't even thinking about a competition then. Like, it had just, uh, and I think that throwing myself into a lot of different things, you know, we got married in 2012, and then we got the keys to Club 360, and you know, I was into my masters, and uh, there was a lot of distractions. Uh, and so I think that really helped with the, the transition, just having a lot of other stuff going on in my life. Um, I think if I had just been doing the same job and nothing else was changing, and all of a sudden I wasn't competing, I, I think that would have been good. Things that happen into life, yeah. given that you're competing every day, exactly. training every day. Yeah. I'm gonna talk about this word here, training and working out. Can you tell some, I've known you in this. <laughs> a fun little story here, right? One day I was talking about working out, yeah. and you had a visceral reaction to that word. Can you tell me why that is? A lot of people was... make fun of this, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about it now. I've actually, one of the uh, software we use is called True Coach. And it basically allows us to program uh, you know, the training. It's what we use to notate our training sessions and then send that to clients uh, for them to, to use on an app at home. But it says, you know, today's workout, workout, and then and then it will send you a notification saying, Sam, you missed your workout. And or if you pre-programmed it, said, Sam, here's your workout for today. I've written to a true coach twice saying, is it possible to change? Uh, and obviously, if they they couldn't just change it for us, like they'd have to change for everyone. So yeah. I said, can you just change it to training session? Can you remove the W word? And we get, I get a lot of uh, you know, jokes made at work about my hatred of the word workout. Um, but I think for whatever reason, it just from when I was growing up, workout was a word that was used to describe like Jane Fonda videos, oh, jumping jacks, yeah, yeah. step aerobics, yeah. working out, and. I think we joked about this uh, before, but it, it seemed it, it came across to me as a very American term. So, oh yeah, I didn't do I didn't do a workout. I didn't do a workout. Um, and I think the way that to, to me it seems like something that you do to get up a sweat and uh, just to to exercise to move, which is fantastic. I have no problem with people working out. I, I think that. Uh, you know, if, if someone does any sort of physical activity, that's a plus. Right? Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to do, either with my clients or with myself, is 
perform an intervention to elicit a specific training response to elicit a specific adaptation. Mm. And for me, just the way that the word workout and the connotations that that has raised throughout my life and throughout my experience, um, I feel like that, that, that word workout doesn't do that process of stimulus and adaptation justice. Okay. And so, so that's why uh, I just don't like the term. But the problem is, with current, like, in the fitness world, the smartest people in the world use the word workout. And, and they're talking about all the stuff that I'm talking about in terms of training stimulus and, and adaptation, and they're doing that, and they're programming on a much, 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 much higher level than I am, and they still say, where this is how we're going to structure our workout if someone goes to workout. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's incorrect usage of the word. It's just that it's my bias. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put up with it, um, uh, but you'll never hear me saying that. Well, actually, I have worked out. Like, last year, I think I worked, you worked out. out. I worked out maybe three times. And I'll usually work out when I don't have the time or motivation to train. Okay. So, for example, last year we were on holidays in Shimoda and we were at the beach house and I had a TRX and I hooked it up to the root and I did some rows, I did some uh, push-ups with my, uh, my two sons on my back, uh, I did some squats holding on to them. Two, two, two both on your back? Yep. Uh, and... I don't know my one dog. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can get a few reps out with both the kids on. And, um, and, and it's basically just moving and keeping some level of strength stimulus there. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not going down, I'm not writing down sets and reps, I'm not working out percentages, I'm not analysing my proximity to failure, I'm not counting it as my total training load. Um, that's just to keep something going. That's what I describe as a workout, and I probably did that three times in 2012. I think I did it maybe once or twice in the bottles and holidays this year. You did a workout? So, yeah, I'll work out. Did a workout? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a. Uh, the other time I can remember, and when we were putting new equipment at the Hills location, uh, this was a few years ago. We were carrying the. There was a lot of heavy boxes of uh, equipment that we put together, carrying them from a truck, and it took an hour. And I sort of went, went through. There was like ten of us. It was great. We had the whole team doing it. And at the end of it, I said, "Guys, that <laughs> is what I call a workout." Randomly lifting stuff and love getting it. sweaty and getting tired with no structure. That was a, that was one of the best workouts I've ever had. I love it. I'm glad I know what a workout is and what a training session is. Alana Jade is a friendly beauty salon located in Azerbaijan, Tokyo. Generously sized enclosed treatment rooms provide a private and relaxing haven where guests come to escape the hustle and bustle of city life. The wide range of deluxe beauty treatments of facials, nails, waxing, massage and eyelashes will have you looking your best from head to toe. Receive 20% off your first treatment when mentioning Tokyo Living Podcast when booking. Um, I want to dive into 360. Yep. You know, and one, one day I remember, I, just blew me, I, knew, I knew you for many years, and it blew me away when all of a sudden I was like, wait, Nathan's your, your brother-in-law? You know, I didn't know that. Some people that have actually known us, like uh, Dr. Tom Lomax has been on the show many, many times. Like He's been our main referrer. I've known him. Probably at the time, I'd known him for like five years. And 
we were sitting around uh, having dinner with some other doctors, and I was explaining the business. I said, yeah, I, I run this with, uh, with my brother-in-law, Nathan. And Tom's like, what? <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I met uh, my wife Lani through Nathan, so I can actually remember, because uh, I used to train at Gold's Gym, and I can remember going into Gold's Gym for the first time, and, and there was like a, a board of personal trainers, and I can remember looking at them, and, and they all looked a little sort of weird and stuck up with their poses, and and, uh, and then there was this one, like, red-headed Aussie guy there that looked a lot a lot more chill than the, the rest. And, um, and it's like, oh, that's, that's cool that there's an you know, Australian-trained um, PT working at Gold's Gym. He actually worked at different branch. So he worked out of Montesando and I was training at Harajuku. And, uh, and then as I sort of went through uh, working with clients at uh, Tokyo Physio, uh, many of them had, had trained with Nathan. Uh, and so I ended up um, you know, meeting him and, and getting to know him, and uh, and then yeah, while I was still at Tokyo Physio, Nathan actually brought um, his sister Lani out to help with his um, personal training business. So Lani did work as a trainer, and she also has a beauty background. And then once they she, she started doing some personal training here they also also realized that there was a big market for beauty salons for expat focused beauty, beauty salons so they ended up setting up alana jade at the end of 2009 so that's coming up to 13 14 years in, in business um, which is well, pretty amazing well so they've been running that and then uh at the end uh, once i retired from Competition 2011. My, I always thought that I'd go back to Australia after retiring from competition. I, I really just saw Japan as a place that would give me the opportunity to further my martial arts career, and, and that's why I came here. Basically, I came out because um, of, of the things that we talked about before, but primarily because I wasn't getting the uh, competitional training experience that I thought was necessary to become world champion while I was in Australia. So. However, meeting Lani and, and forming more of a life here, uh, we sort of we talked about wanting to stay longer, and uh, and we really liked Japan, and so it made sense then. You know, I I, I really uh, I feel very deeply indebted to uh, you know, Bevan and his wife Vanessa for uh, getting me started at Tokyo Physio and giving me the opportunity. Because if I hadn't have had that opportunity, I might have been. English teaching to pay my way through yeah, 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 competitive right. because we weren't really getting paid even though I was competing. I think at that time there was at least I searched. That's how I got to know you. Right, it was when you were there, and that was like the only yeah physio in town. Exactly. So I had the opportunity to continue working uh, as a physiotherapist, making a good living uh, while I was training for competition. Um, but after seven years, I'd sort of outgrown the clinic and, and wanted to do more. And I started my master's in exercise science and strength and conditioning. So I had this interest in sports performance, and uh, which, when you look at physiotherapy now, there's a lot more focus on strength and conditioning as the sort of main treatment modality combined with education and advice. Um, whereas at that say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, there wasn't as big a focus, and, and coming from a an elite sports background, and also coming from my personal background in karate, where I, I relied a lot on my physicality, I had a strong interest in in, uh, in training, in strength and conditioning, and that side. So I started doing my masters, and 
and I wanted to be in an environment where I could do that. You know, physio, Tokyo Physio, at that time, they've opened a, a, a new facility now, which is fantastic for them. But at that time, they didn't really have uh, the gym set up there. Yeah. And, and it's what I've talked about before in terms of the way that, we've, the way that physiotherapists approach um, management of conditions, I think, has uh, um, encouraged Tokyo Physio to change their sort of um, their, their premises and work at their, their facilities. Uh, but uh, at that time, it wasn't there. So I wanted to have a gym environment. So, and, and Nathan had always wanted to have his own facility as well. He trained out of Gold's Gym and out of the park and, and doing that sort of uh, contractor type of uh, role as a, as a trainer. But yeah, he's always dreamt about having his own facility. So it just made perfect sense at that stage for us to try and find somewhere where we could combine both the the rehab side and the training together and, uh, and also incorporate, yeah, boxing and martial arts. Uh, Nathan at that time had just started uh, executive fight night with a couple of friends uh, who actually ended up becoming Pub360 investors. And so we also needed a, a space where we could train the participants for executive fight night. So everything just fell into place. It's like if we could find somewhere where we could do training, physio, boxing, and then I, you know, for me, I can teach my kids karate there. It, it just all made sense. Um, so that was the easy part. Uh, finding somewhere <laughs> we could do all that in one of the most expensive cities in the world was uh, the hard part. Um, luckily, um, it was actually after the, um, I don't say luckily, the, uh, the earthquake in, in 2011 obviously ruined a lot of people's lives and took a lot of lives, but uh, it did change the real estate market sufficiently so that we were actually able to get in where yeah. we would have really struggled to find the space. I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time in our space. Yeah. We're lucky to have um, now two facilities. So here where we are at the tower location, we have 300 square metres. Our other location, we have 400 square metres. Um, to give you an idea, we pay almost double the rent on this place that we do on uh, the bigger place in Montalazabu. So we got a very good deal and we've managed to keep the rent has gone up, but, but uh, we're still paying a very good uh, rate for that, um, that location. So we're very lucky. And uh, we were also lucky that you know, we, Nathan had a pre-existing clientele. Uh, I had a reputation. I didn't uh, take clients from uh, Tokyo Physio, but you know people knew about me and they ended up finding me. So it wasn't like we were starting from scratch. And I think that was helpful because uh, you know, having the overheads from day one and then not having some sort of cash flow and some sort of client base would have been very difficult. Tell me a little, Sam, about, because um, I think it's very unique, the approach that you take, um, you and Nathan take, about the care for someone who comes in with some uh, long-term pain. Yep. You know, and what's, what's the philosophy you guys have towards approaching that patient? Uh, it's, it's, it's very complex, and I think I've talked about pain in general and uh, on other episodes, and I, I find it very difficult to talk about these sort of things in simplistic terms, uh, but as, as basic as that can be, I mean, we, we look at the, the individual client, uh, what problem they have, and you, you, you want to identify it as a problem, and it might not be, someone might just have, you know, the, the goal of getting healthier, but, but what is the base uh, thing that's driving them to be healthy? Is it longevity? Is it they want to look better? Is it a combination of different things? Is it pressure from someone else? Is, is, is a family member concerned about their health and them wanting to get, uh, get healthier? Uh, that will change how we approach um, the... It might not necessarily change the, 
the, the exercise selection sets and reps, but it does change the psychology behind how we approach an individual. Uh, and then if they're in pain, I mean, there's so many things that go into that uh, that we need to analyse. And, and like I said, I've, I've talked about this in previous episodes. And if you're watching the YouTube um, version of this, uh, I can actually link to these episodes here. So where I'm pointing, if it's the right side of the screen, I'll point on this side as well in case I've messed that up. But uh, we'll put links to different, uh, because if you want to uh, know about how I approach pain and how I approach um, the injury rehabilitation, it is quite a complex thing. But um, yeah, at the base of it though, we want to try and have a relationship with the person to the point where we really understand what that person needs. Uh, and then, like you said, we've got a range of different services and different professionals with different skills and different personalities and, and different backgrounds. And we've got you know the, the, a number of different cultures of our, our staff, which you know, is, is a lot of fun and uh, can sometimes be cause a lot of problems, <laughs> but, uh, but also provides us you know different options uh, for people as well. I, I like how you put it all together, Sam. I think, and I, it's, you say it's complex, but in your treatment of me, it was, it felt like the, uh, I'm going back to the, the credit kid, you know, the wax on, wax off. Yeah. He, he's doing these things, he's doing wax on, wax off. He doesn't understand it. It's like, this is what boring. What am I freaking doing? And then all of a sudden he realizes he's fighting. Oh, this is how, this is what's working. Um, I had a chronic pain in my shoulder and the staff here, um, really, they, they changed my life around. I didn't have pain anymore. I understood how to deal with it. And I have to do an outlook on my pain. Yeah. So I want to say thank you for that. And definitely check out the links if you want to know more about it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we love to hear um, stories of where we've been able to help people because that's what we're trying to do and that's what makes us happy as a drivers. Do you suffer lower back pain while sitting in the office or during long haul travel? The lumber jacket may be just the solution you're looking for. This revolutionary product features a built-in inflatable and height-adjustable lower back support concealed within a fashionable and comfortable garment. Perfect for work and travel. Visit lumberjacket.com for more details or simply search Lumberjacket on Amazon. Now, Sam, there's something else I think is really important that people get to know about you, and that's your motivation. Yeah. Right? You had this motivation for karate, um, motivation for your, your gym, and how you approach the business. Where does your motivation come from? What's the source? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I still ask myself that sometimes. Uh, When I finished competing uh, in in competition, it it was a really, really difficult transition. And I'm still making that transition and I probably still will be for the rest of my life. That's interesting. What is that? uh, A lot of people look at uh, sports, people look at high level professional sports stars and and think that the transition from being an athlete to not being an athlete is that you know, they get fat because they're not training in, in more or they're not making a lot of money anymore and that must be really difficult, which you know, for some people it is. Uh, but it's, it's really the psyche of being a competitor. When you're competing in sport at a high level, your whole life revolves around being better than other people. And that... You might structure your approach to being successful in sport in a, a very internal way. So you might just be focused on achieving you know, better uh, lifts in the gym or better targets with your training process. You might have you 
numerical measures that you want to get to. You might have specific technical things that, you know, I proved this technique, I, you know, in this sparring session or this tournament, this was better. And, and you might be very self-focused about um, not comparing yourself to others. But at the end of the day, none of that matters if you, you don't win. That your whole focus is on winning. Your whole focus is, being, is on being better than someone else. When you retire and you no longer have that platform to prove yourself better than other people, then, and then when that has been your drive and motivation for, for me for at least you know, 15 years, that is a really difficult thing to come to terms with. And so I think in some ways I still rely on that competitiveness to, to motivate me in, in areas where maybe it shouldn't. Uh, or maybe it might not be the same motivation for other people. When it comes to either interacting with a client or running a business in a way that we provide these interactions of our staff with other clients, our main motivation is addressing that those clients' needs and giving them the best service possible and, and, and trying to optimise their outcomes. Part of that, or a big part of that, requires... Uh, me to be uh, the best practitioner that I can be. So I need to be as knowledgeable, I need to um, capitalise on my experience, reflect on my experience and try to continue to keep improving myself. And then we need to run the business in a way that provides the best possible service to, uh, to our clients. And that is by far my main motivation. However, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't still that competitive streak in me that still wants to be, you know, I, I want to be the best, I want to be the best fighter in the world. I also want to be the best physio in the world. There's not a, a physio world championship. <laughs> that would be stupid because you, you can't, it's, it's not something that you classify like that. But I still want to be the best, best version of me, but I also still want to be better than others. Like, um, and if someone comes to me and they've maybe had... Uh, uh, an issue that hasn't been resolved, and then you know, I've not been able to help everyone that comes to me. And I don't think any practitioner can claim to have had a successful outcome with every single client or every single patient they've worked with. Uh, that's just not the way things uh, things work. You know, people get better for reasons that are completely unrelated to the people that are trying to help them. People get better through natural um, history and people for a number of different reasons simply don't have the ability to recover from conditions. That's the, 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 the facts that we face. Um, and every health practitioner is trying to do their best to help the person in front of them. So I never look down on uh, other health practitioners and I, I sometimes get frustrated if people have been given not necessarily inferior management to that I would provide, but I do get angry when people are provided with information that's not true, that's not factual, and, and it's not up to date with you know, the current thinking that we know, or we have a high confidence in being um, yeah, evidence-informed and the right thing for that person. Um, so that's a whole other topic we can talk about. but. Uh, going back to that, if someone comes back to me and they've had an unsuccessful experience, unsuccessful outcome with another practitioner who has tried their very best to help that person and I'm able to uh, do something different that, that does allow that person to be successful, 
my main motivation is that that person is happy and that that person, and I've helped that person uh, improve on that aspect of their life, but I also feel like mm, that's a little win for me. I've, I've gotcha, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that competitive streak is very difficult to go away. Now, that may be, some people might look at that as an inferior way to approach especially an industry like healthcare, um, but I think that it provides me with a little bit of extra motivation uh, to to help that person. And, and the same thing from a business perspective. You know, I want uh, I, do, I want our business to be more successful and provide a better service than um, yeah, the gym next door or the clinic down down the road. Um, I don't wish that uh, that gym or clinic is unsuccessful. I want I want that clinic to be better than. Club 360 is today, mm. but I want Club 360 tomorrow to be better than they are. Right? And then I want if, if they step up the game and they, you know, uh, they're doing something different. Uh, that's fantastic. That gives me motivation to try and improve something uh, with our business and then be better than, than them next week. Um, but that that competitive streak, that competitor, that beast still lives within me, and uh, and I embrace that. That that that, uh, that aspect, and I try and use it where, where possible. But I also need to acknowledge it and need to uh, understand where I need to push it to the side and uh, and not let the, the competitiveness uh, take over. That's good. So you got a lot of good self awareness. It's in there, and you're channeling it in the right way, as opposed to in some more negative way, which might impact your business. Yeah. And uh, and I don't think that it. I'd like to think that it doesn't come across. Um, with clients, you know, I'd like to think that I'm very client focused when I'm with a person. But part of that client focus, as I said, uh, requires me to be the best version of me as I can be, and so that's why I'm continuing to, to improve all the time. I remember, I'll do a little anecdote here. Um, that back to your motivation, you had me. You wanted me to read a book on pain, and it was like week, months went by. Have you read it yet? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't read it at all. But what you did is you would read it to me. Yeah. Between sets. Yeah. And you, you would get the page, <laughs> and you kept reading it to me and reading it to me, and I saw that motivation. You were like, okay, this guy is not reading the book. I needed to read the book, and you found a way. That was that motivation I saw. You know? And so that was really cool. Yes, I think we'll So let's talk about training sessions, then, not workouts. The future of Club 360, what are the training sessions? What's this vision you've got for training sessions for? Current clients, more clients. Yeah. So when I think about my career, and I think this sort of parallels Nathan's as well in terms of timeline. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was working as a physiotherapist at another practice, and my influence on people's health was the person that was in front of me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then into my 30s, uh, we started Club 360 when I was 31. Um, we then had a team, and that's been a you know, continually growing team of other health practitioners that were able to help other people, um, that we, we were able to collaborate together in terms of sharing knowledge, sharing our experience, um, sharing, developing systems uh, that we could use to influence the health of a lot more people than just the one person that was in front of me during my 20s when I was working uh, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a practitioner working um, just with my own clients. So that's definitely scaled the influence that we've had on people's health. Going into my 40s now, uh, the, I think the next stage in Club 360 is just looking at 
our opportunities to scale that even further. So we don't want to help just the people that are working with us. We want to help you know a, a lot more people. Looking at sort of corporate ventures where we can. Uh, provide seminars and instructional materials. So we 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 have an online ergonomics and corporate health uh, workplace health program that, that we're trying to push, which um, you know is basically a series of videos going through different facets of workplace health and uh, and, and ergonomics. And uh, so that, but we're also looking at other ways that we can help companies um, to improve the health of uh, their their team members. We've also got an education platform, which uh, we have online uh, fitness courses in English and Japanese, and so we're trying to promote that to, to try and share some of our knowledge and experience to uh, health practitioners in Japan, so that they can then help their clients as well. And by doing that, if we have uh, instead of having twenty people in our company that, that have their clients, we might if we can certify a thousand people, and each of those thousand people have uh, twenty clients. And you can see how our reach can expand. There. Yeah, let's go. So I think that scaling it in that way, and yeah, you know, we, we do want to have other physical locations. Uh, we want to open other Club Three Hundred and Sixty locations, and uh, we want to work towards doing that. And had the pandemic not occurred. Uh, we, we may have had a third location, but that's something that we want to work towards and, and doing our market research and, and seeing where that best location is. But uh, that's something that we're looking towards. Uh, I think on a bigger scale, there's a couple of things personally that, that uh, I would like to try to have some impact on. And uh, one is the registration process of physiotherapists and uh, our ability to work in the national uh, health insurance system which currently yeah. we our clients can't use uh, their national health insurance a lot of people do have international health insurance mm -hmm. uh, but the, the number of people on those expat packages that provide international health insurance is actually decreasing there's a lot more sort of local hires and, and so that limits people's ability to utilize our services and so that is something that I want to try and look into and look at what other non-English speaking countries do in terms of their registration and see if there's any way of influencing uh, the Japanese uh, system in that regard. The other one which uh, I would really like to see, um, which is maybe slightly more realistic but still a little bit of a, a pipe dream, is having some sort of change to policy in terms of health insurance uh, based on someone's activity levels. So in other parts of the world uh, there's reductions in health insurance premiums and things like that for people who are seen to be uh, or proved to be physically active, uh, who have gym memberships, who are engaging in, in physical activity and exercise. I think trying to change policy in Japan, whereby that even within the Japanese national health insurance where there was a slight reduction in premiums depending on someone's activity level, I think great to see. even just nudging that towards someday that being the case in 20 or 30 years, having some impact on a policy change like that. You know, as everyone who lives in Japan knows, things like this happen extremely slowly. So uh, it might not even happen within my sort of career, but if I was to somehow have some influence on that, uh, I think that would be something that, that uh, I'll be really proud of in terms of scaling our impact on the health of people in this country. I think it'd be great. My, 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 my mother, she's 87 in the US, and she's, she's a part of a program like that. Okay. Where by doing things and, and she gets really? points. Yeah. 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 It's um, funny, she's even got a Fitbit now because I think she, she walks so much in a day and it helps her premiums. Yeah. 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 
I think I think it's a it's a great system, and, and I think that um, it just it just you just need data and proof to show that the long term uh, investment in decreasing health insurance premium will lead to a healthier uh, community, healthier population, which will then take less expense away from the, the health system. So. We wish you luck on that because we definitely can use it here in Tokyo and Japan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about, um, Sam, any regrets? You got this really amazing career in karate and now in physiotherapy as a practitioner and starting your own company. Any regrets? I wouldn't say regrets. Uh, I don't like the word regret. And, uh, you know, I think that everything I've done and everything that hasn't worked well I've learned from. I'd like to think that I'm, I've learned from and still trying to learn from. Uh, things that I've done, dif would have done differently, I think. I mean, early on, in terms of my karate career, like we talked about before about my focus on physicality, and I think that that, that sort of transitioned into business as well. I think I tend to, like, have a motivation for something, have an idea, and then channel my energy and just go hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and so from a... A karate perspective, taking a step back and looking, analysing matches, being more tactical in my approach, I think would have seen me, uh, I mean, I was successful being technical and being strong and fit, and I, that was what I was proud of, that, you know, if it got down to the point where it was a stamina match, I would most of the time be able to, to run over the other person. Um, but I think one of the things that's helped, like, in the last six months is doing jiu-jitsu, uh, which is sort of my main uh, training focus at the moment. And jiu-jitsu is very different, different to karate in that it's very tactical, very analytical. There's a lot of problem solving. And I thought, I think I've learned from jiu-jitsu uh, that I need to be more analytical and, and need to think more about things. And, and so that would have been useful from a karate perspective. And I think just from my business projects and, and things, I tend to, yeah, like I said, get myself, get my head into a certain mindset and then just go rather than researching options a little more thoroughly and even just listening to people and, and trying to get a little bit more advice and assistance with things. I think I like to, to do things on, on my own and and uh, perhaps not listen to people as much as I probably should. So, yeah, they're all things that, I'm, that I think I've learned from and, and try to continue learn from, learning from. Uh, the things that maybe I would have done better, but maybe if I had have done them better in the first place, I wouldn't be learning. So, yeah, that's, that's how much of it. Learning from mistakes. Yeah. Tell us about your goals. Any personal goals you've got set out? Um, I think I I used to set very uh, outcome-based goals, and uh, I think long term there are some yeah personal goals, financial goals, and things that I've got. But this year I sort of set very specific um, process goals, and so things that I want to do that don't depend on other people. So I've talked a lot about sort of goal setting in the, in, the, in the past, and in general, there's the three basic types of goals are um, the uh, outcome goals. So yeah, if, if we're talking about sport, it's winning the world championship. Now that depends on so many different factors. Uh, the most important of all, who I'm competing against, which I have no control over. Um, then you have the performance goals. So you know, I want to, achieve a certain goal but it's um it's very outcome based so it's yeah i want to bench press a certain amount of weight or something like that i want to run uh you know 5k in a certain time 
Uh, that's all great. I think that you need to have some of those goals, but having outcome, uh, having process goals, I want to do. I want to get a certain amount of uh, sleep a night. Uh, so I did use that as a specific example. Uh, it's maybe a goal. I need, I need to go like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I actually made my goals at the start of the year um, public. I, I posted them on uh, like LinkedIn and Instagram, and I said that like, if you if you're around me and you see some of these goals, let me know how I'm going, and if you can. Oh, help me. So yeah, if, if you're on my social media, you can check those out. Uh, but the, the, there was a variety of things, uh, but they're all process goals, different things: health, uh, business, relationships, family, uh, training, and so doing those little things. Um, but yeah, my main goal is just to sort of see Club360 grow in, in the ways that I've described uh, before and just continuing to optimise the service that we're providing to our clients. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then just, I guess, within myself, um, you know, having three kids, my goals have to be very family orientated as well. So, you know, providing the best opportunities for my kids in terms of their education, in terms of their experience, what they're exposed to. Um, lucky that I've had a, uh, that I have a, a wonderful wife um, that has been extremely supportive through my athletic career and through the business and uh, is the, the best mother anyone could, could wish for. Um, uh, equal, equal best with my own mother, I guess I should say. But uh, she's amazing and, and together, you know, running, two businesses and having three kids and being extremely busy and living this crazy Tokyo lifestyle, it's not easy, but uh, we've got a you know, fantastic uh, partnership and uh, I'm lucky to, to have her. And um, and so, yeah, that, that's, it's very much sort of the Club 360-based goals and then uh, the goals for our family. No, that's very cool. And you do have a great family and, and Juan is a wonderful wife. Um, before we close out, Sam, I've got one interesting question I want to ask you. Yes. Um, you are a fierce competitor. Um, again, world class development for karate. But I know there's two things that you're afraid of. Yeah. That people probably would, wouldn't imagine you'd be afraid of. Can yeah. you tell us about those? Uh, I'm terrified of birds and fish. So I don't know. There's, there's specific incidents with both of them. I'm not sure whether I uh, had a aversion to these creatures prior to or these species prior to. Uh, to these events happening, um, but for as long as I can remember, I've, I've had that. You know, I can only use the Japanese term of uh, sensation with it, either the wings, and the, it's just unnatural for something to like move and look like that. Like you're looking at me, going, "No, it's not." <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a bit weird. They're just weird creatures. Um, but we were on holiday in Fiji one time, and I was uh, wasn't super young. I was probably like eight or nine. And I had a snorkel on and, and goggles, and I put my head under water. And I don't know what I was expecting. I think maybe I was expecting to see some fish uh, swimming around, but I was surrounded with them, and it just freaked me out. So I jumped out of the water and uh, took the goggles off and ran back to shore. Uh, the bird one, I, we had a bird cage when I was a kid. Uh, I was probably the yeah, baby. This table times one and a half, and you know. Uh, so high and anyway, uh, we have I think we had like three birds in there and uh, I would go in there to feed them and I would hate going in there to feed. I was I was a little bit cautious. I was scared. So I was obviously scared already at that stage. I went in there. My nephew, who's a younger a year younger than me, uh, went in to help me feed them and uh, my little brother 
closed the door on us, locked the door, and started shaking the cage, and the birds went crazy, and that scared the shit out of me. So that that was a a somewhat traumatic experience. Um, I think my little brother didn't think this through, the fact that what he'd done to his older brother and older nephew, uh, so I think he went and hid behind uh, my mum for a week. Um, But yeah, those two experiences. So um, I've always been a little bit funny uh, around those those species. Thanks for sharing that, Sam. Um, Sam, it's been a pleasure just being able to interview you. Uh, I think you're a wonderful man. You've got a great career. You've got an amazing family. Uh, I love that you do the Tokyo Living Podcast. Thank Thanks you. a lot for having me on and being the host. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you very much for, for doing this and for doing this twice uh, for, for the listeners and viewers. We actually uh, recorded this once and had some uh, audio issues. Uh, so uh, I, I do really appreciate you taking the time and, um, and for uh, yeah, giving um, me this chance to sort of talk a little bit about myself. Uh, and yeah, for, for the, the people that have been uh, you know, a part of my life in, in Tokyo for the last, or in Japan for the last 18 and a half years and, and even leading up to that, um, and have had some influence uh, on me, thank you. You know, I've, I've enjoyed, loved uh, yeah, every moment of my time out here and I've had uh, the chance to meet some fantastic individuals that have yeah, influenced me in, in a number of different ways. So, uh, yeah, thank you, and, and for everyone who supported Club 360, we're actually going to have an interview where we talk a little bit more about Club 360 um, uh, next week, and uh, and we'll have my regular guest host, Lani, back in the, this seat, but um, I hope you, you, you'll tune in for that one. Um, and, yeah, for all the regular listeners of the Tokyo Living Podcast, this is episode 99. Next week we'll be releasing uh, episode 100. Um, thank you for watching and listening, and thank you for your support. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you on the next, next episode. Thank you for listening to the Tokyo Living Podcast. If you enjoy the content, we'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you'd like to enjoy your podcast. We look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Have a healthy and active week.